0: Well, good afternoon. We have a bit of a London-centric webinar today as I sit in the city and our guest, Professor David Latchman, is over towards the west. David, as you know, is the Vice Chancellor of Birkbeck at the University of London. We're gonna be learning a lot about Birkbeck, not at least its founding in a pub, but that's for another thats for another moment. Uh, now, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors as yet, and it really is a privilege to be able to introduce these many webinars uh, that we uh, have. And we do so because we're ranging widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. But more and more, uh, our sponsors are interested in making sure that that's fully rounded. And we appreciate their tolerance as we explore many things. And what we're here today to do is to explore, of course, higher learning. But Birkbeck is an unusual institution, uh, very much founded on the premise of lifelong learning. And uh, I think anybody who is a member of F's club is clearly dedicated to lifelong learning and let's see how it's done professionally. Now, my job, as you know, is to get out of the way as quickly as possible, and I will do so and leave you in the hands of our expert for 20 minutes. Uh, But just before I do so, just a few moments uh, on housekeeping. Uh, Firstly, yes, there are slides and they are posted. In fact, they're already up on the website and you can view them. Secondly, yes, this is being recorded and the recording will be available in about two working days, so uh, Wednesday afternoon. Uh, and you can share that with friends and colleagues. And thirdly, yes, there is Q&A, 20 minutes of it. So please uh, get your questions running here. It's a fascinating area, but please do use the GoToWebinar uh, question facility. I say that because I'm here with you and I'll feed those comments, questions and observations into a discussion with David, but I won't be able to do so via email, signal, WhatsApp, whatever else you feel like using, so uh, type them in. May I also point out that all those questions and comments and observations, will have your email attached to and they will get to David so if you've got a small point of information or want to follow something up just do that or just even to contact David just type in you know thanks so much for the presentation and he will get that as well. So David uh, with that housekeeping out of the way may I say it is a delight to welcome you and the floor is yours. Thank you very much Michael
1: um, and thank you for the invitation. Um, so if we could go on to the next slide please. Um, so here we have our Burkbeck logo Um, And those of you with very sharp eyes will notice that the dot above the eye in Birkbeck is a half moon. Um, And when you take that together with the owl in our shield to the left, um, you will realize that this is the key to Birkbeck, that we teach primarily in the evening. So we teach University of London qualifications, to students who are working or have other commitments during the day, and that is the core of Birkbeck. Um, A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated the 198th anniversary um, of Birkbeck, founded um, in a pub, as Michael has said, um, in 1823, and not without controversy, as you can see um, from this title. So this is a quote from the St. James Chronicle. I'm going to read you a little bit more about what it said about the start of Birkbeck or the Mechanics Institute, as it was called then, founded by George Birkbeck. It said, a scheme more completely adapted for the destruction of the empire could not have been invented by the author of evil himself. And Birkbeck and his colleagues scattering the seeds of evil, the extent of which the wisest of them cannot anticipate. Well, so for you to judge 198 years later, where these seeds of evil um, have gone. Let's have the next slide, please. And you can see here that Birkbeck was indeed founded in a pub um, on the Strand, I think just outside the city. But from 1823 to 1883, we were in Southampton buildings within the city. And then we moved to Breams buildings, again within the city, 1883 until 1952. You can see here a picture of George Birkbeck and a picture of the Breams building um, that we had. And the Lord Mayor is ex officio, vice president of Birkbeck. So each year your city Lord Mayor becomes the vice president um, of Birkbeck. But Birkbeck did leave the city, let's go on to the next um, slide, and it moved to Bloomsbury as part of a massive plan for the university to have all its colleges in Bloomsbury. You can see in this picture right at the end of the avenue the University of London Senate House and our buildings on the right opened by Her Majesty the Queen Mother um, in 1952 and you'll see actually that although the other colleges didn't move um, to Bloomsbury, you'll see a little bit later on that perhaps Birkbeck is consolidating its position as a very key um, college in Bloomsbury. If I could have the next slide please. So you can see that we are, as it says, working Londoners and we have been doing that since 1823. Um, Birkbeck survived the Blitz in London, it was the only university to remain teaching in London, and it has survived various different government measures. There has never been, to be fair, government measures aimed at damaging Birkbeck, it just did all sorts of things that it thought were sensible and then ended up damaging Birkbeck. So, for example, the ELQ situation, equivalent or, or lesser qualifications, the government stopped funding people who had a degree to do another first degree or a shorter course or whatever. You might think that that's very sensible. As a minister said to me, why should people who've spent three years doing French in Durham then go and study American history in Sussex for another three years? Well, the answer is that 95% of the people who are ELQ or were before the money was taken away were actually people retraining and reskilling and studying part time. So this effect decimated Birkbeck decimated the Open University, as did various other reforms that happened subsequently. And we have had to recover from that by various measures that we'll come to later. But we have all the time had governments of all political complexions, which have paid lip service to lifelong learning, whilst making other changes, which in the end damaged lifelong learning. Now, I think the fourth industrial revolution, the changes of COVID, Brexit, all mean that people will no longer study till they're 21, then go off and get a job and perhaps 40 years later, get a gold watch or a carriage clock or whatever it may be. Government has recognized that by introducing a lifelong learning entitlement from 2025. So everybody will have four years of entitlement to loan funding, which they can use as they wish, whether it's a degree, whether it's short courses and so on. So we very much welcome this, but of course we need to position Birkbeck so that it takes advantage of this And we finally, in effect, have won our political battle, but we need to really now show that we can respond to this and deliver in the way that we need to. Um, The next slide, please. One of the privileges of being head of Birkbeck is that it's not just about our unique evening model of teaching, but it's also about outstanding research. And we have a number of areas of outstanding research, not least the baby lab and toddler lab, which you see illustrated here, being visited by the then Minister for Higher Education, Chris Skidmore MP, who has done a great deal now for lifelong learning and is leading on various lifelong learning reports. And interestingly, if you look at government um, assessments of teaching and research, it has a TEF, the Teaching Excellence Framework, where it assesses teaching, and a REF, a Research Excellence Framework, where it assesses research. There are some universities that do very, very well in the research, less well in the teaching, others that do very well in the teaching and less well in the research. We are, because I wouldn't have told you about it if it wasn't the case, are in the top quadrants of those who do very well in in the TEF and very well in the REF. I'm very proud of that combination. The research is very important in itself, but also very important for mature students to be taught by people who are at the cutting edge of research. It's not a some second choice that they can only do because they're in the evening. It should be something that they really want to do and where they benefit from outstanding research as well. Um, Let's go on to the next slide. And here you see some of the things um, that we are doing. So we are unique. There's no one else offering face to face teaching in the evening. We have um, we did go fully online with COVID and that was very successful when things settle, well, We have gone back this term to um, a mixture of face-to-face and um, online. We have learned the lessons, if you like, of the COVID pandemic, which is that some things are really best done online, but other things really should be done face-to-face. So we may have to retreat back with the new variant online, but our um, real position is that we do face-to-face blended um, with online. Um, I have mentioned ELQ already. We also now have Students who are doing their undergraduate degrees, the standard model was four years in the evening compared to three years full time in the day. The majority of our undergraduate students are now studying full time effectively in the evening. So they are doing their degrees in three years and combining it with work and family um, situations. And the master's can be done in two years part time or again one year in the evening full time. Now, excellence also attracts very many international students who value having the day free and being able to study in the evening. Um, depending on your political position, we have alumni for you. If you uh, we have the business secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, the Lib Dem Leader Ed Davey, and if you like that sort of thing, the former shadow chancellor, um, John McDonnell. Um, those who um, follow these things may also know that Ramsay McDonnell was an alum of Birkbeck. He wrote a foreword to the centenary history of Birkbeck in 1923, during the brief period when Labour were in government before they fell again. Um, and so, for those who are Tories, it was probably a nightmare that John McDonnell from 11 um, Downing Street would be writing the foreword to our 200th anniversary. Um, that's not happening, but we do have um, the business secretary. So. I do want to emphasise particularly the dedication of the students. It's not a trivial thing to do a University London degree in three years in the evening when you're working during the day and studying. And I often say to people, if you want to come and visit us, as I hope a number of you will, after the pandemic, um, come and stand in the lobby with me at five to six and see all these people pouring into Birkbeck. Think that in any other university in the country, the flow is outwards. In Birkbeck, it's inwards. You can't get out of the door people clutching their coffee cups, and you think to yourself, I've done a full day's work, do I really want now three hours of rigorous higher education? Very many people do, because they're trying to improve themselves either in their current career um, or change to a different career. And the next slide, please. Next one, sorry, we missed one. And we believe that it's very important, even with the online learning, to continue to provide the very best facilities for our students and our researchers. Um, so the, if you look at the top left, you can see a row of Georgian buildings. But actually, the first one, the light, the brown one, not the big building, which is the Warburg Institute, but the very first of those light brown buildings is actually a newly built toddler lab, built to satisfy Camden Council and fit in with the, um, the ambiance of the entire terrace of Georgian houses. So that's for research. In teaching, the building that you can see on the right hand side is the the Birkbeck building on the Euston Road, um, which is a teaching facility. And you can just about see at the top this sort of brown lecture theatre, looking like a spaceship that has landed um, on top. Very much Marmite, I think, actually. Some people love it. and It's won architectural awards um, and some people hate it. But it allows us to teach in very good facilities. And the most important of all, perhaps, is on the bottom left, which is what was called Student Central, or the Yulu building. Some of you may remember it as the University of London Union. We bought this building um, for a large amount of money over the summer, and we intend to use it to fulfill our ambition of all students being taught on Birkbeck premises. So we've had to up till now rent space in the evening. We are now um, able, once this building is on stream, to teach everything with blended learning in a situation where we control our own IT and we are able to do um, exactly how we, to teach exactly how um, we wish to do so. So those are some of the new buildings. As you've got at the um, the bottom there, in two years time, it will be 200. And one of the things I very often say is that very few um, institutions reach their 200th anniversary but actually still fewer reach it doing something that the founder would recognize. So if George Birkbeck were to miraculously join this podcast, um, he might not understand much of what I've been saying about masters and so on and so forth, but he would understand our key mission of educating working London's. And we do that um, in five different schools. So science, arts and humanities, social science, um, law, and perhaps the most relevant to this audience, the Business School or the School of Business, Economics and Informatics has a very strong management department, the oldest organizational psychology department in the UK, an economics department, and a computer science and information technology department. They all work very closely um, with business, as do some of our other departments, offering, for example, students to have internships, offering opportunities for business to mentor students and so on. So I encourage, obviously, those listening who may want to have their staff gain mentoring experience to get in touch with us. If you're looking for an intern or even if you're not, um, Birkbeck students are very good um, at that. And probably about 75 to 80 percent are hired by the firm um, after they finish their internship. And we have people who sponsor the internships. But I think it's the ultimate accolade that students get hired. In that way. I want to finish with just a couple of little anecdotes about Birkbeck students, because really you can only understand these things through the Birkbeck student. So when the when the um, tragic bombings took place on the London Underground, the spotlight fell on one of our students who was a tube train driver driving the train behind the one that exploded in Edgware Road. And he led his passengers to safety. He was named on Sky as Sky Man of the Week or whatever, and interviewed and so on. And the spotlight fell on him. What was his story? He left school at 16. He said to me, the school system failed me completely. He did an undergraduate degree at the Open University. Would you believe at the time of the bombing was doing a master's in Birkbeck in contemporary politics? and eventually went on to do a PhD on how the Nazis used corrupt judges at the beginning of their regime to give a measure of of legality to their proceedings. Um, And so this guy reached the highest levels of academia, having been thrown on the scrap heap um, at 16. So it's something really that is of vital importance. To give you another example, we had a young man who saw on a Birkbeck advert on the side of the bus, And he thought to myself, my mother's retiring from Hackney Council. Maybe she'd like to do a four-year English degree. So she signed up for it. He discovered that we were now doing three-year degrees in business. And so he took a degree in business, working in a firm during the day. And as he said to me, very often, he says, I said to the bosses, what you're doing is what we learned about last night. And that theory has been disproved. You should be doing something completely different. So whether he was very popular, they did hire him further at the end of his degree. And he said to me, at the end of my degree, I have a degree and a work experience, whereas my peer group has either a degree or work experience. And finally, right at the other end of the age range, in 2009, date age is important, A little old lady goes to the help desk and she says to the person on the help desk, I'm trying to register for the fourth year of my geography degree. And so the kid on the help desk says, yes, of course you are. you don't know how to use a computer, do you? Come over here. Let's put in your name. Yes, very good. Let's put in your address and your course. Very good. Now let's scroll to the year of your birth. So she said, that's my problem. It won't let me put in 1909. So she was 100 years old and she graduated at 101. And there is lots and lots of data that says that people who continue active have better interaction with their families. Many of our students say, "I can relate to our grandma-grandchildren because we're both doing a degree." And many of them have health, you have health benefits from keeping active. So there are all those benefits, and something that I think really Birkbeck, one feels that one is doing something which is really different. I hope you've seen in this podcast um, that I'm passionate about Birkbeck. It's one of the reasons why I've stayed as master and then vice chancellor um, for a long time. And I think really, finally, a story which I think I mentioned to Michael earlier, which was that on one occasion a few years ago, I came into a room of business people um, who were having a meeting and I sat down, I was introduced as the vice chancellor of Birkbeck. And one of them said to me, when I see Birkbeck on a CV, I put it to the top of my pile because your students have the commitment that I want in my business. And that is something we remember all the time. We must give them the very best facilities, the very best teaching supported by research so that they can fulfill their aims, go on to promotion at work or better jobs, or simply like the old lady, carry on studying right until the end of your life. Thank you very much for listening and looking forward to the questions.
0: Thank you, David. That was super. What a a lovely canter through it. Uh, Just a few things, uh, if I could just to warm up. Could you uh, give us a, a few statistics about uh, say total enrollment, uh, total employees, uh, where you stand in the international league tables?
1: Yes, so well we have um, we have around ten thousand students. We have around a thousand staff, both academic um, and support staff. We have withdrawn from UK league tables because UK league tables are all about entry criteria. So if you put your A-level results very high, you will rise up the entry criteria. Um, You'll rise up the league table, whereas we are interested in added value and no league table has yet really captured added value. So what qualifications do students come in with and what qualifications do they go out with? Um, We do rather well in international um, league tables where around the top 150 universities in the world. Um, But as I say, UK league tables, we have chosen to withdraw from because we don't believe that they really provide appropriate um, information. It was interesting in one of the papers, I think the Sunday Times, um, it said that Birkbeck is not in the league tables, but it can stand comparison with any institution um, with which it uh, is, is in the league tables. So I was interested to know know, how you you mounted a propaganda campaign saying, Birkbeck can stand comparison with anybody else. Probably not something that overseas students would quite get the nuance, um, but it was nice nonetheless.
0: And and just just following along that line, what what is the proportion of overseas students then?
1: It was very, very small when I started. It's up now to about 10 to 15%. Um, So we have conducted quite a lot of, of campaigns to raise it. And I think when we looked when I started at where we were, traditionally, people hadn't really appealed to overseas students um, because the degrees were longer and they were in the evening. I think now we have degrees that are the same length as normal um, degrees, then it's it's much more appealing. And of course, they can get visas and study in the same way as a student who's studying during the day. um, And they can do some small amount of internship or work during the day as well within the limits of their visa
0: okay um i do want to move on to some thematic questions but i've got two more uh if you don't mind more about the practicalities of the product as long as we got the uh, as long as we're here online uh, you mentioned the five um schools that you have roughly uh what would it take for somebody to to go and do say a a, a bsc or a master's in one of your in one of your schools just in, in rough round so terms. it's
1: yeah i mean i think the the point is that It depends on your age. So between 18 and 21, we would have particular A-level grades that we would seek. Um, They wouldn't be that high because we're trying to be open access. Beyond 21 for an undergraduate degree, we would look at your commitment and life experience rather than your qualifications. At Masters, you should have an undergraduate degree, obviously, but for undergraduates, it's an open access effectively, as long as you can convince the interviewer that you are doing something, as with this um, person who had the tube driver, he had already got an undergraduate degree, but he didn't have any A-levels or O-levels. Had he come to us for the undergraduate degree, we would have taken him based on his, uh, his commitment. So it's, it's really about trying to get to people who think, you know, I'm not good enough, I really can't do this, I haven't got A-levels or O-levels, GCSE or whatever. Uh,
0: and the second question along those lines, um, a lot of people outside the sector would contrast you with the Open University, and you raised OU as well um just could you highlight some of the points of difference there
1: yeah i mean OU is absolutely excellent we work very closely with the OU in political campaigns for um, mature students and part-time students i guess the fundamental differences are the OU is primarily online whereas we in normal times are primarily in person face-to-face even in the last term know with the pandemic we've still managed to provide quite a lot face-to-face it is more blended and it will be in the future more blended but it's never going to be at the online nature of the open university the other thing is that our students tend to study at greater intensity so they're doing three-year degrees one-year masters many many OU students spread their degrees undergraduate or masters across many many years and build up so it's it's probably if you want a sort of short shorter sharper um, whatever and you're in london then we are probably good if you're in the shetland islands and you want to study slowly then uh OU is fantastic
0: okay uh we've got a question here from hugh Purser. Are, are are you offering courses which no other institutions are offering
1: i guess we're offering sort of things that are much more focused on on the needs of business so they would still be called economics or management or whatever it may be um, but generally they would be similar we do have some niche courses um, for example we run an mba with le cordon bleu which is a um, for gourmet chefs and the <clears throat> the issue there as in many professions is that people have a tremendous skill but they don't know how to run a business so they, they learn the cooking and the gourmet at Le Cordon Bleu, and they learn the business with us. And I think there's a big area there that we're starting to get into of things that require a lot of skill, but actually you don't quite understand what your costs are, you know you don't understand what your income needs are, and so on. So we have, do have those. Generally, though, there would be the, the standard types of courses, um, but they are courses that are more tuned, perhaps, to business. Um, government does a lot now on this so-called Delta survey of what students earn five years after graduating, um, our economics course is the third in the country after, I think, Cambridge and the LSE of all courses, whatever the subject is, it's the third highest earning course, including management, business, and everything else. So we do have you know, people who who do quite well afterwards as well.
0: well I like your cordon bleu example. Um, you know, it brought to mind a kind of a culinary BA, you know, CBA business administration. (laughs) Uh, But Um, Hugh thinks that you're just cooking the books. Anyway, Hugh, you can calm down. (laughs) Uh, But Hugh does have another point. Uh, He he continues. He says, evening classes may have been designed in a nine to five working day era, is that fair? Um, But do you think this still model will hold given the current and future structure of work?
1: And that's an excellent question. And and I can, yeah, we've just done a big strategic review of a sort of post COVID, post Brexit. I think there is still a place I think what we have concluded though is that the model we had some time ago of four evenings a week and coming in still nine, four evenings a week is no longer sustainable because even I think post-pandemic people won't be coming in to work four evenings a week. What we have to do is to fit into their needs. So if your employer is saying you can come two, two days a week, we need to tell you very quickly in the year if you study this course, you come in October, it's now let's say March, April, you need to come Tuesdays and Thursdays, go and ask your employer if it's all right for you to come in Tuesdays and Thursdays, and then the rest of it is blended. So my answer is yes, but combined with online, not the traditional model that everything is face-to-face, because obviously the world of work um, is different. And I should say also, excuse me, in popular courses, we do offer where there are seminars and so on that we offer Um, where there are multiple seminars in parallel, that you can do it during the day if you want. So if you have spare time during the day and you're not working one of the days a week, you can do it during the day as well.
0: Okay. Now, uh, we have an interesting uh, proposal from Eric Brutian. And just just to set the scene briefly, um, Eric is dialing in from Toronto. And I've known Eric a a number of years and admire uh, his uh, very much a polymathic approach uh, that he has to life. So let me just read this. This is not a question, but a lengthy proposal. I'm a very recent graduate of Birkbeck with a BA combined degree scheme in philosophy and computing through the University of London external program. I gained this degree in the venerable age of 44 this year without even being physically at Birkbeck. Amongst a few other degrees I have, I treat this one as the most practical and useful. The University of London has stopped offering combined degree schemes from this year on. I think it is a mistake. Combined degree schemes, especially those that bring together STEM and liberal arts produce generalists. And one that can argue without a generalist there is little real progress. Uh, Birkbeck could consider offering combined degree schemes internally without dependence on other schools of the University of London. So Eric's asking for your comment on that proposal.
1: Thank you very much for that. I mean, thank you particularly for the praise of the the course. We do work closely with the University of London International Programme. We offer a large number of courses as as distance learning courses, pure um, online learning, which is obviously one of those that you've taken. I will go back to our people and ask if the University of London has dropped some of those courses, then is there something that we can um, pick up? We have been talking a lot in Birkbeck in general about interdisciplinary courses and trying to combine various things together. I've felt for a very, very long time that, you know, it should, you know, as a scientist, you know, if, if an arts person says, I don't understand science, that's somehow acceptable. That's not now in the pandemic, but it certainly was before. If a science person says, I know I would never go to a play, never go to the theatre or whatever, you would be called a sort of uncultured hooligan. So I think, you know, anything we can do to bring the two cultures um, together would really be something. I will go back and look at that because, in fact, this morning we were discussing what online things we could offer that the University of London doesn't offer. Um, so we offer it to them because they have the system. But if they don't want to do it, then we think about doing it ourselves. So I will um, follow that up. Certainly. So thank you. For
0: that. Yeah, we always seem to circle back to CP Snow, but uh, let's let's uh, let's continue here. Um, i got a question here on, on your toddler lab. Could you expand on that? That's a lovely phrase, but what does it mean?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So we had a number of years ago, um, we started a baby lab, which was looking, using non-invasive technology. So like a hairnet that you put on the child's head to measure brain activity. So entirely non-invasive, the baby's sitting on the mother's lap, watching a screen as we're watching, but it has a sort of hairnet on that is monitoring its whatever and they are very interested in early diagnosis of autism. So looking at very young children who haven't yet, so if you look at, they do a sibling study, siblings of children with autism who have a higher risk, and then looking at their brain activity at a very, very early age, six months, nine months of age, before any behavioral problems um, have occurred. And so they picked up something that if you look at, have a, a screen where there's a face and the eyes are looking at you, Some babies react in one way and others in a different way. Those that react in a different way tend to have a much higher chance of developing autism, which obey the gaze, if you like. So this is a possible early marker, which you could use to design behavioral interventions before you actually have behavioral issues. Um, Problem with the baby lab, it's wonderful, but the baby, via its hairnet, is in a sense plugged into the wall and that's fine for a baby sitting on its mother's lap. They're very, very happy. Those of you who are thinking that they're not, they are extremely happy. Uh, my son, um, who's now 13, went through that when he was about uh, two years old, and he got a little t-shirt saying, I'm a baby scientist. And of course he was far, far more intelligent than any of the other children they'd ever tested, um, as all parents think that their child is when they go to the baby lab. But they are, they have to be plugged in. We now have a toddler lab, which is basically virtual reality. Um, and so the child now, can have the net, but the net is signaling to the virtual whatever rather than having to be tethered in any way. And of course, having a toddler sitting on its mother's lap doing something is not going to be a typical what a toddler wants to do. As somebody said to me they, they want to toddle. So uh, this allows them to toddle around and be recorded in various environments, virtual reality, something that simulates a living room, something that's like a, a classroom with Lego and so on. Um, so it's very, very exciting, and it is the first of its kind in the world. There are no other uh, laboratories um, of this kind. So I just find it very amusing that in this mock Georgian building along a Georgian terrace, if you open the door and go in, is a sort of state-of-the-art um, research facility that is absolutely unique in the world.
0: Oh, excellent. Uh, continuing down that line a little bit, in a way, um, so many of the... Uh, higher education type facilities seem to push their own business model almost exclusively. So if you listen to the MOOCs, you know, the Coursera's, the EDX's, and that's the only way of the future. If you listen to the traditional institutions, you know, steady on, dear chap. Yes, uh, a lot of remote learning is rather fascinating, but if you want to do it right, you you obviously come up to, you know, to Oxford and do it properly. So we've got kind of both extremes there. Um, you, of course, are somewhere in the middle and multimodal and multi approach. And so, the question I'm driving is sort of along that toddler lab thing. What work might you be doing on genuine research into pedagogic approaches? So, you know, what is the best approach? Is math best learned mostly online? Are languages learned mostly online for basic uh, grammar skills? But, you know, what, what's going on in that world? Because I, it all seems to me people pushing an approach at me, but me not having any research to evaluate what what really works in which circumstances
1: yeah i mean i think i'm you know i'm not an educationalist in the sense of you know that sort of research i think what i can tell you is two things one of the things is that you know oxford cambridge fantastic my own university but i think something that a lot of people miss out on so you know if you go back to the example of the tube driver you know, thrown on the scrap heap at 16, but actually capable of getting a doctorate and so on. So, you know, I think very many people want something different and realise something later in life. We had a wonderful um, woman on our governing body who started studying when her daughter went to SOAS to do a degree. And the daughter came home and the lady said, well, I could do this went to Birkbeck and eventually became a member of South and on the governing body having done a couple of degrees. So I think that's one thing that independent of mode our key thing I think there um, is age. I think the other thing in terms of mode is that before the pandemic we started doing lecture capture and recording lectures, letting students watch them later when the baby's gone to sleep or whatever. And my colleagues said to me, this is before the pandemic, we're losing students because they're just not coming. They're watching them online and they could perfectly well come at six o'clock, but they're watching it online. And I said, that tells me that you're using their valuable time wrongly, that the set piece lecture should be online. And then you say, by Tuesday, everybody will have watched this and then we will come in and break into tutorial groups and so on. So it's anecdotal evidence, Michael, rather than, you know, whatever. But I think there's a, there's a thing there that says you know, 200 students in a lecture theatre can be done just as well online. 10, mm. 15 students sitting round talking to their... And more importantly, talking to each other, because that's very, very important. You know, that, that that's something that's much better done face-to-face. And that, of course, was the tragedy of this ELQ that I spoke about, where people who had a degree couldn't come back and do another degree in the subject that they really wanted. They lost out, but actually the class lost out because people who were studying for the first time would really have benefited from having other people who said, you know, well yes, I was worried about my first essay when I did my degree in Durham, but actually it was all right, I got through and you know, let's work on it together. So I think mm. that was a real real tragedy. So I think I think it's about dipping in and taking the best of both worlds. What I really don't like is this suggestion that was made you know, before we had the new variant that universities were reluctant to go back to face-to-face because online was cheaper um, and I think you know, online is actually not cheaper if you do it properly if you have live streaming and whatever where students can be together and others can be online it's certainly not cheaper than doing it um, face-to-face we have to take the very best of face-to-face with the very best of online and put them together for a new thing and that's not just I think for 48 year old students it's also for 18 year old students.
0: Hmm. Okay, now um, you, you mentioned earlier that you and the OU uh, lobby together for, for things, so what sort of things are both of you lobbying for?
1: Okay, well I've spent umpteen more years than I care to remember lobbying for better support for part-time students, lobbying mm. against the LQ, lobbying for part-time students to be properly recognised. And I felt very much most of the time, I was always listened to by ministers very courteously. And one felt as soon as one had gone out of the room, if you'd said to the minister, what's a university student that up would have popped an 18-year-old with an Oxbridge scarf? And they would have forgotten about part-time before I was even out of the room. And in fact, on occasion, I would say to my colleagues, I wish somebody would I just say to me, what you do is a waste of time so that I could actually fight back and challenge it, rather than being told, you know, very well done, and off you go now. We do now, whatever you think of this government, we do have a government now which really is serious about lifelong learning. You know, the minister, Michelle donnellan the former Secretary of State, are all, Gavin Williamson, very, very, very committed to this. And I think now we are in a position where everybody knows lifelong learning is important. Everybody knows it's got to be properly done. But we are going through a period now where we really need to work out the details. And it must be, this is what we're lobbying for, a lifelong learning entitlement, not a lifelong learning allowance to do what government wants you to do, i.e., chemistry or whatever it may be, but to do what you want to do across a four year period. We have a system which really basically says to middle class kids if you don't go to university, you are stupid. So they go to university, they study a subject which they were quite good at at school. 10, 15 years later, they think to themselves, actually, I need a degree in IT or I need a degree in whatever it may be. And they are told, thank you very much. but You've had your bite of the cherry. You need to go and fund yourself, which very often they can't do. So what we are lobbying for is a proper supported system that doesn't necessarily push you into university at the age of 18, but lets you really benefit from it when you can benefit from it. Mm.
0: Now, I don't want to spend too, too too much on this because as you said, this is sort of 10 to 15% of your intake. Um, but our audience is very interested in uh, Britain's competitiveness. And it's constantly held out that uh, higher education is a big area of competitiveness, although there have been, when you dig into the numbers, many fluctuations uh, in in attendance. But uh, could you produce a few comments on your assessment of the, the British higher education sector in a competitive world, please.
1: Yes, well, I think, you know, you wouldn't expect me to say anything other than it's excellent, um, which of course it is. Um, but I think that, that what I would say is that, you know, the vagaries of government policy have affected it. We've I mean, had previous governments, uh, which were clearly anti-overseas uh, students coming here and, you know, did their best to make sure that not that many students would come here. I think we do have a government now. I'm sorry to sound like an apologist to the government, but you know, they are doing some good things. And I think you know, they are promoting Britain as a destination for international students. And the thing I would say is that you know, there's an economic argument which says the student comes here, he or she pays his fee or her fee. They shop around, you know, they buy things in shops, they go out to pubs or whatever it may be, all contributing to the economy. But actually, the greatest argument in favour is that those people go back to their countries. Probably they become important people in their countries. And when they want to do business, my feeling is they will look to Britain first because they spent a year or two years or three years living in Britain. And that to me is the greatest argument that we are sending people back who are both saying I had a good experience in the UK and encouraging others to come but also looking to Britain as a natural partner. And, you know, I've had so many experiences in the past where people have said to me, not just I studied at Birkbeck, but, you know, I'm very into the UK because I studied in UCL or I studied in Oxford or wherever it may be. I think that is so, so important and actually much more valuable, even than the money that they spend, whether it be on their fees or on, you know, maintenance and buying bottles of milk or whatever it might
0: be. Mm-hmm. Now we have a a, quite a large technology component to our audience um is there something that you've seen recently technologically and i and i don't mean ai and big data but something you've seen that really impressed you you thought this this could transform the way we deliver higher education
1: good question i think i think the i think actually the pandemic is transforming it so i think the fact that we in Burtbeck and very many other universities had to rapidly go online you know in the beginning of the pandemic had to then for the start of you know the next year really start to be as sophisticated as we possibly can i think that has really made us start to think how do we do things you know what actually works so it's not a particular bit of technology it's more about you know what actually works i think we're looking at that you know in terms of meetings and i don't know how you feel Michael or, or people listening to this call, but I'm, I'm very tempted to you know, say in Birkbeck, we make a decision whether a meeting is face-to-face or online. And if the meeting is face-to-face, you know, just think in 2019, you'd have had to send your apologies. If you can't come for whatever reason, send your apologies. I think that's for a period when things are settled down. I was saying that for the last three months or so, probably not saying it now, given the, the changes that have occurred in the last couple of weeks. But hopefully when we get back to normal, I think we need to take the very best, but what we can't have, I think, is, is too many meetings where, you know, we're all 10 people are sitting in a room and another pe- 10 people are desperately trying to follow it online. I think there are great virtues to what we're doing now. As you said, we can be joined by people around the world, but there are also very great virtues in sitting in a room together I and mean, interacting, as I hope, Michael, we're going to do when you are coming to visit Birkbeck in the, in the new year. Hopefully that will survive the latest um, COVID round and we'll be able to do that.
0: And a sort of a final question, and uh, if there's anything I missed, uh, please pitch in, but we've been doing a lot of studies here in the City of London on what the future holds. And one of the interesting things that's popped up in a number of the surveys and interviews that we've conducted has been a, a genuine desire for nighttime learning. This isn't necessarily directed towards degrees, but it's the idea that there's more to do in the evenings than just kind of go to the pub and doubt some alcohol, uh, believe it or not. <laughs> and, uh, and I was curious if you've seen any indications of that or how you were reacting to that, if you see that as true.
1: Okay, I think what we're, what we're starting to do is a lot more short courses that you can take during the day or in the evening, um, not entirely on some online and some not online, and ones that gain credit. And I think my, my very clear thing in terms of Birkbeck is that we should be doing credit based courses so that you get a credit for studying something you've always wanted to study but you in the end are able to say actually oh look i'm halfway to a degree by taking these four or five courses i'm not a great advocate of MOOCs and things that don't contain credit because i think a lot of universities thought they were going to get thousands of students and make lots of money by having people proceed onto degrees and whatever. Most people who do MOOCs already have a degree, so they don't actually tend to proceed anyway. I think small bite-sized credit-bearing courses in which you get a nice certificate um, and whatever. And I I have to finish, Michael, if you said that was your last question with a story about a Birkbeck certificate. So I was once on a platform with a young lady who was in a wheelchair, disabled, and she'd studied at Birkbeck and done a one-year course to get a certificate. And she said to me, I'll tell you what Birkbeck means to me. This was actually, strangely enough, in the mansion house in the presence of the the then Lord Mayor. And she said, I'll tell you what Birkbeck means to me. I was in my flat with my five-year-old child and sparks started coming out of a plug in my wall in the kitchen. And so I called my uncle, who's an electrician, and he said, leave the building as quickly as possible and I'll come round and deal with it and take your child with you. So I I started by getting to my wheelchair. I got my child by the hand. And I set off, and then I thought, I must go back and rescue my Birkbeck certificate from the wall for my diploma. So she went back and got her certificate, and I said, so she'd spoken, the, and I came on to speak after her in the mansion house. And I said, and did, your, did anything happen? You know, what was the problem? Uh, she said, oh, my uncle fixed it. It was all fine. I said, well, I, I'm very glad to hear that. But, you know, if you'd left behind your certificate and it had been destroyed, we would have given you another certificate. <laughs>
0: You got me thinking about the toddler lab again. <laughs> well, look, David, it's been really great. When you opened this up, um, scattering the seeds of evil, I was sort of aware of the empire quote, but it, I, my heart sank as you began to regale us with all the politicians who had emerged from Burtback. back. And I guess that's probably also the seeds of evil, but we probably won't go there. <laughs> it's been really good of you to come and just, just in such a nice and gentle way, you know, explain to a lot of people out here, Uh, what the soul of it's about, because we can read a lot of it online, but it's so important to hear from uh, you, the Vice Chancellor, and Master, your thoughts on this, and we truly appreciate you coming here. Um, If I may, three quick words of thanks. Uh, Firstly, uh, to our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely. Secondly, uh, to you, the audience, we've got a couple of things coming up. Uh, David Bannister, the grand old man of digitalization in financial services on Wednesday, and next Monday, uh, our last one before the new year, Robert Barnes, uh, the venerable Robert Barnes from the LSEG, the man who set up Turquoise, uh, talking to us what is going on in the global market. So a lot ahead, but mostly uh, thanks to you, David. You and the team at Birkbeck do do wonderful work. I I spent uh, five hours, believe it or not, with one of your graduates yesterday. I wish I could claim it was research, but uh, we certainly got to the bottom of our glasses on the subject Uh, and it it is an institution that is unlike any other institution in higher education in that it is it, people seem to come away fervently i had a part-time degree at Birkbeck, but i'm fervent about it in a way that you don't see for example in community colleges in america or such so uh, i think that spirit speaks volumes and possibly far more important than whatever uh, sort of uh, league table concoction is is currently dominating the charts but uh, our sincere thanks to you I'm afraid I, I have yet to figure out a technology that allows us to open the floodgates of applause, so I'll have to do it this way, but on behalf of the audience, thank you. Thank you,
1: thank you very much, Mike.